This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we talk about genomics and how NetApp can accelerate genomic analytics. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. NetApp. I love this company. Zipok. Zipok. I love NetApp because it's so funny. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm here in the studio and with me today I have a couple of people from the genomics uh, team. So uh, first of all, let's talk to Gus Horn. So Gus, what do you do here at NetUp and uh, where can we find information? Uh, Good morning, Justin. So yeah, Gus Horn, I am uh, basically the analytic and um, AI ML subject matter expert globally. So I span genomics as well as other disciplines within but what we're finding is that um, everything is converging when it comes to how we are approaching just vast amounts of data, and genomics is a huge contributor to this uh, onslaught of data that's coming uh, with 23andMe and a lot of these other organizations collecting data uh, everywhere. Um, so I'm here to help uh, David uh, in this marketplace and, and help um, NetApp define our solutions for our customers here. And you mentioned David, and he's here as well. So, David Labrosse, uh, what do you do here at NetApp? Yeah, no, glad to be here, Justin. Uh, I'm actually a nine-year uh, veteran now at NetApp. I've been working on healthcare life sciences and more recently as noted genomics. Uh, my focus is to have a, a global uh, perspective on the genomics marketplace. As was just pointed out, it is a rapidly uh, emerging and, and converging space today. Uh, we see that from both uh, the business and the use case model, as well as from the technology consolidation as well. So we're talking about genomics today, and a lot of people have heard of the term, and maybe a lot of you even know what the term is. But, David, if you could kind of give us an overview of genomics and what it means to the overall healthcare industry. Yeah, it's a great point because, as noted, we, we see a lot of advertisements tied to genomics today, and, and that's representative of the different uh, touch points for, for the average person, the consumer. So we probably need to do justice and, and help expand upon that definition. So as many people know, there's a tremendous amount of consumer-driven uh, DNA collection for the purpose of, you know, just having a fun research on your family history. Great example, 23andMe, Ancestry.com, and many others that are out there. Uh, most recently, my sister Diane actually did this uh, 23andMe thing. And that's great. You know, it is revealing some information that folks didn't have about their family ancestry. So that's great. But also, as, as noted, there's more information and reports being provided on what I would call an advisory level, not truly clinical, but advisory level on indications of potential genetic uniqueness or even in some cases, genetic preposition for diseases like brain cancer or something like that. So, so it's really interesting because right now in the marketplace for genomics, and DNA services, it, it's kind of broadening, and yet there are some discussions around the value of it, right? So in the case of my family member, she wanted to learn about family history, but and I think she had some interest in family health history too, but there are some uh, questions out there about when and where uh, the genomics or DNA data is really useful. So, so changing gears to go to another area of focus, uh, another obvious area of focus is really the hospital or healthcare setting itself, a point of care 
And what we're seeing there is a, a significant gro- growth in the use of genomics to do a diagnostic services like cancer diagnoses, as many of us know. And so the diagnostic side of genomics is very, very important because what it simply does is it accelerates the confirmation of potential disease for, for the care, point of care. Um, it helps doctors, nurses, and other clinicians to narrow down their search for a diagnosis. And then, of course, with the information provided or in their research, they can actually pin down a customized or personalized treatment for the individual patient. So, again, those are two major areas that we see today, one being consumer-driven almost for fun, and then the second one we're highlighting are more towards taking care of patients and literally saving lives in some cases. So, David is talking about precision medicine with genomics uh, and in both the biopharmaceutical and bioinformatics industry, but there's still one other component that we shouldn't um, hesitate to mention, and that is the plant kingdom as well as the, all of the other species on this planet. There are initiatives really worldwide to really uh, do the full genomic profile for everything from what we eat uh, to uh, all of uh, the rest of the, the species that are on the planet. So there is an enormous effort around genomics and genomic research um, that stands beyond the human being as well. So. He's right. There's really, we've already identified a list of potential uh, use cases. I think we're up to 24 now. So there's different types and sizes. So I think the simplest answer is anything that's living in the case of bio and species is, is susceptible to some type of analysis from a genetic point of view. And certainly as noted, plants are very uh, complicated from a genomics point of view. The average person doesn't understand that, but it's true. They have a tremendous uh, you know, geo- genome that we are just now, in some cases, learning. Uh, in fact, I would say a couple of years ago, we just did a complete uh, whole genome of the, the wheat plant, which is a common plant that we all know for bread and other things. And yet, as noted, having a better genetic understanding is going to help us to do things like make stronger uh, drought-resistant plants. It's going to, as noted, help us develop new drugs, hopefully, uh, faster and more personalized. Um, there's other areas, too, that are interesting. I won't go through the whole list of 24, but a couple more cause. We're seeing uh, far more activity on, on the policing or judicial system where we're identifying suspects and or criminals themselves through some DNA uh, tracking. And this has been done before, but I think it's getting faster and better than we've ever seen it. And then also other areas, we actually had a, a customer talk about where they're using uh, genetic research and DNA to identify microbiomes that actually live inside of the pipes that that the oil and, and gas industry uses. And apparently some of these pipes go out to the oil rigs in the ocean and there are leaks being caused because these microbiomes are literally eating holes or cracks into these pipes and causing leaks. So again, these are extreme or different use cases that you don't initially know about. But I guess simply said again, anything that has a, a living uh, genome is, is something of interest and something we want to support. Yeah, I mean, those are some great points, and those are things that we don't always think about. You know, we always think about genomics in terms of, like you said, the 23andMe and the and the kind of entertainment factor. And I'd argue that there's a lot more to that than the entertainment factor, right? They're collecting data for other things later on, but that's besides the point. Um, you know, things like the the plant uh, and, and crops and that sort of thing, making sure that we have drought-resistant plants. And then you mentioned the the uh, use in law enforcement. We actually have started to solve cold cases, you know, things that were unsolvable previously. We're now able to use DNA and, and genomics to figure out 
who might have done things, you know, back in the 70s or 60s, whatever. You know, the Golden State Killer is a good example, right? That was the first uh, DNA cold case solved. Exactly. Yeah, and I think we should flag that this is not easy work. I know it sounds easy, and I know it's been historically around for some time, but as we transition maybe more towards the technology topic, a lot of this relies on first, obviously, having the data, having the samples of DNA. Uh, It's an obvious thing you need to start off with, but then from there, there's all types of, uh, you know, making sure that's quality uh, samples, making sure that when you go to the process of sequencing from the living material, whether it be saliva, blood, what have you, to a digitized code, ACTG code, and then from there, making sure it's quality strings, quality reads. Um, certainly, analytically speaking, you've got to take a lot of this big data, as we call it, and go through it and identify where are the biomarkers, where are the mutations. And of course, these are all important data points that are more and more being benchmarked and and cataloged. And yet, as we also know, in these many living species areas, there's millions and millions of variations that still are not understood and identified. So there's a lot more to do in terms of taking the data and processing and analyzing it. And then, of course, beyond that, you need to take care of the, the data itself. There's a lot of curation and regulatory requirements, especially when you're talking about the privacy issues that come up around DNA or maybe even criminality, you certainly need to have some level of uh, protection, some level of backup. So there's a there's a bigger life cycle around this from a data management point of view. Then I would add one other thing. I mean, this is the kind of data set that people want to retain forever. You know, you've gone through the effort of, of actually producing the actual uh, genomic profile and getting all that data and, and keeping it. The, the value in this is not having just one sample but the value is truly in having, you know, literally billions of samples, if not uh, trillions, when we start looking at the broader scheme of uh, genetic, genetic coding, you know, so the, the, the true strength in this space is actually in the retention of this data and then how we can apply um, really analytics, machine learning, and new technologies to better understanding that uh, for the greater good of humanity, for lack of a better word, really. You know, so the key attribute here is how can we curate the retain data, and then allow it to be utilized by other companies around the world. And this is really where the, the strength comes in for NetApp. So you, you said the D word, data, um, and that's really where NetApp has like a, its sweet spot. So let's talk a little bit more about that, and let's start with the workflow. Um, so. You know, previously with DNA and, and genomics analysis, we didn't have the technology available to do the long crawls through all the, the DNA strings and that sort of thing. Now we do. So tell us how all that works. So I'll, I'll jump in and let Gus come in afterwards. So, again, what we're seeing more and more is the technology itself uh, becoming more useful, right? So give examples. We know, obviously, the collecting of, of the samples. Uh, you see in the consumer side of it, 23andMe offering uh, kits, if you will, that you can do at home. In the past, you couldn't do this at home, right? You could uh, simply go to a hospital or some clinic, but now you can go at home, you can do a, a cheek swab, other uh, low in- invasive techniques from a technology point of view to get the information or the samples out to a sequencing facility. Um, and then once in it's in the sequencing facility itself, uh, there's certain controls from a living tissue or living saliva thing that they have to maintain make sure the samples are of a certain quality for for analysis, but then they get into what we would call the sequencing phase. And the sequencers themselves, there's a few of them on the market, I won't 
name them, but you know these these sequencing machines that convert the living tissue or saliva into a digital code. Uh, their advancement is phenomenal. In the past, it would take them days, if not weeks, just to process the samples. Now, it's taking days, in some cases, hours to process. So the acceleration factor is something we need to call out because the samples become digital code. They become data or large files and small files. So then the files themselves are carried over into what we would call more of the uh, secondary analysis phase of the life cycle. And that's where we see a lot of algorithms, whether they're homegrown or whether they're uh, standards that are evolving in the marketplace like GATK. And that secondary analysis, of course, is very critical because you've already gone through and, and digitized and created meaningful files, but yet you still don't have a complete understanding of what's in those files in terms of the codes and, and what those biomarkers mean. So that's an area where we're working with some other partners to explore how can we then up beyond our great capabilities of enabling data access and data management, data security and data privacy. How can we help in these other areas? So as a great example, uh, we're working with a company called Petagene based out of the UK and they have this technology that's phenomenal. It can actually take these larger files, these genomic files and compress them down in significant ways. And of course, when you have smaller files, you can actually manage them and, and, and transfer them and analyze them potentially faster, as an example. And I would uh, agree with David there that the, the speed of, of, of insight, let's say, is really, it's moving not on a linear curve, but really on an, on an exponential curve. And, and this is driving the industry as well, because what used to be uh, systems that could accommodate the kind of workflows and, and data acquisition are rapidly changing to ones that one hasn't seen other than in supercomputing environments where you needed massive amounts of capability in order to accommodate the data flows. So it's really representative of the change in the space. And here again is, um, you know, for every challenge is there in this space, there's an opportunity for companies like NetApp. And this is where uh, people like David and myself, and of course you, Justin, we recently, you know, become more and more aware of some of these uh, um, these, these challenges that, that we are, I think, uniquely positioned to help our customers uh, solve. And that's, that's one of the truly interesting spaces here is how we see the change coming and how we can accommodate that with our architectures. Yeah, so, I, I think another point we should make is the volume of data. We've covered a lot of the pieces of the data going through the life cycle of the flow, but the volume of the data, the volume of files is really significant because as with any of these analysis, you have to have a lot of data. Right. You know, you can't just rely on a small bucket of data more and more as you look at the government initiatives like in the UK, um, the US. You know, we just had an expansion in areas with NIH where they announced this program about a year ago called All of Us. And that program is designed to collect a million samples, which we touched upon. But what we really want to emphasize is that they're trying to bring together large volumes of data so that the results of the analysis and the uh, acceleration of, of identifying mutations or biomarkers is greatly expedited because you have more data. Um, and I think it's important because a lot of times folks look at DNA as just this one-off thing that we're doing, but it really relies heavily on that, that massive amount of data so that you can run high-performance compute, you can run a lot of these algorithms much faster, and hopefully with, with quicker uh, identifications of things that can, again, improve how we do things, whether it's planting 
wheat or whether it's saving lives. So, yeah, big data is a factor to that. And to add one other thing here, one of the key attributes here is that while there's a vast amount of collection of data, the real strength comes in how it's shared. So when we start thinking about a lot of the efforts that NetApp has put into the cloud, this is one of the key things. While we can generate vast amounts of data and, and then moving that data into this analytic platform is you know difficult. And of course, once you have a lot of it, you get that data gravity associated with it. The next component is how is this actually fundamentally shared? in these communities because the strength isn't just in say one pharma company looking at a, a genome, but actually it's the strength in all of these startups and all of these other companies worldwide that are looking at it. So we can get kind of uh, what I would say the collective intelligence and collective use of the data is where the real strength is. And that's where a lot of our cloud technologies and how we can move things into the cloud, how you can protect that data when it's in the cloud so people can then, you know, start to, you know, federate it and use it with their own data sets. And that, that's really where the strength comes. So walk me through a solution that would fit into this description. So I, ha I have a data lake and I have lots of genomic data in that data lake. And I need to access that data from multiple sites around the world because these sites are going to be pulling that data down, doing analysis, and then leveraging either AI, machine learning, something along those lines. And it has to be high performance. So how would I accomplish that in a solution? Yeah, so what the heaviest lifting in a lot of these cases is once you've collected the data from the, the sequencers, once you have that sequence data, then you apply the algorithms to really um, distill and coalesce that data into meaningful data points that then can be reutilized. You know, so a lot of times these companies are going to collect the data with the sequencers. Once they've curated that data, then it becomes a much more usable form of the data. And then the question is, when you provide that out into the open, it becomes a commodity. Let's be honest. What it comes down to is we can help our, our customers commoditize this data um, and then you know, effectively make use of that data for other pharmaceutical purposes, for other you know research purposes. Uh, albeit research is less likely to be something that you're going to be you know, charging money for, but the pharma companies are willing to pay a lot of money for you know, having the ability to utilize larger and larger data sets than they can acquire on their own. So if you want to look at communities of data that are uh, homogenous, you might look at what, what do I have for data sets, for example, from Japan. Another example would be, well, I really want to look at that Northern European. Uh, where is there, let's say, uh, an island nation that is, you know, very uh, much not impacted by uh, migration of people, and you probably look at countries like Iceland, for example. So, where you have very, you know, homogenous populations with not a lot of genetic drift, let's say, um, it allows for companies to really spot, you know, patterns of information that then have a lot of value. And we can help them to federate that. There's some companies that have recently basically been born in the cloud and they want to remain in the cloud, but then they want to be able to monetize that data while it's sitting there. And then there are others where they have it on-prem, but they want to be able to utilize those cloud um, information sets as well. So that, that's kind of the workflow that we see. We see both public and private um, data sets being consumed simultaneously. So what data. sort of what sort of NetApp products where my, would my data lake live? Like, where would I put my data lake? Well, I mean, fundamentally, it depends on the, the genesis of the data, who has ownership of it. Oftentimes, that data lake is going to is going to exist on prem because it's one of these kind of situations where retention policies are large. 
and also the quantities of data and performance of acquisition is also quite large. You're going to see it span both uh, what I would say a an on-prem uh, data lake that needs to scale to really fundamentally hundreds of petabytes of capacity. And then once you've curated and categorized that data, then you can use some of our other products like CloudSync and Cloud Volumes on Tap, as well as some of the other services we provide to present data sets in the cloud that have already been curated and then they can monetize that in the cloud as a delivery mechanism, you know, a secure delivery mechanism, let's say, for other contributors and other research institutions that want to access it. Um, on the other hand, there are also the cases where people literally will fundamentally be doing the sequencing and actually putting the data into the cloud. Um, and in that particular case, it is its, its landing zone, it's its, its, its final uh, place that it's going to stay, and it's also where it has to be curated and retained um, with the same kind of policies that they could do on-prem, but in a very cost-effective way. Yeah, I want to add to that or expand upon that a little bit again. So um, I think it's important to highlight, we're definitely seeing what was described in our product set utilization for genomics, uh, a focus on on-premise internal. We're seeing some on the cloud. I want to kind of echo, but also go beyond that a little bit. We're seeing um, smaller researchers, somewhat surprisingly, becoming more capable because of the tools that Gus was just describing, right? So in some cases, they may have existing infrastructure we've provided for years. And they're finding out that, wait a minute, I can use that in a different way or, or expand upon what I'm using it for and, and still have uh, the familiarity of, of what NANA provides and ONTAP, for example. And, and yet perhaps they need to go to the cloud, as noted, because maybe their type of research has changed. Maybe they're now going from lung cancer analysis to, to brain cancer analysis, right? So that means they need to go to a different set of data that, that they may not have. So I think it's interesting because the word I'm really trying to work towards here is a flexible platform or flexible model where if you're a small researcher or maybe an expert in, in brain cancer, but yet you don't have all the data and you need to find it, you have probably more options today with our technology than ever before, be it on-premise where maybe you, you had a sense of you or utilizing on a temporary basis, or maybe you're just going out to a cloud option like we provide today, you know, cloud services on tap or cloud volume services. So there's a lot of choice and flexibility that wasn't there from a technology point of view even a few years ago. So you mentioned consumption of that data. What's, how are you seeing customers consume that data? What sort of protocols are they leveraging to get to that data and access it? Yeah, so we're seeing a lot of NFS play out there, a lot of file-based uh, technology requirements. But Gus, you want to add to that? Yeah, so I would say that what we're finding is, especially with the advent of, of cloud and the disruption that Amazon brings into space, we see a lot of S3 as kind of the common deep data lake repository, S3 as an object store, and of course that bodes very well for us with our storage grid web scale, scale product. So having the ability to have a very deep and and um, really protected data lake based on uh, an S3 as that, that commonality for how you pull and extract the data and manipulate it and do things with it is proven to be kind of uh, the gravitational force that we see out there. We see people gravitating to that but it's also a combination of both NFS, as uh, David and, and Justin, you mentioned. So these sequencing systems, they don't natively want to, let's say, speak at three per se. It generates its data, its file-based data. And then this data basically goes through a life cycle process for the life cycle of the data and curation of it because there are lots of errors associated with the data. So a lot of the times 
you're collecting samples, you have to do error checking and analysis of the data and to make sure that you have a good uh, data set and you want to un uncover any problems within the data, data set, which means you want to retain everything you did to actually come up with that result. And that that's there in lines that S3 objects where you want to have not just the curated portion, but also also all of the the underlying core data points that generated that curated result so that should there be different technologies in the future and you want to go through the reanalysis of that because you believe that you can find more insights in that data, it allows you to do that without having to resequence it, uh, which uh, for the, the sequencing companies is not a great thing because they make their money like printer companies. You know, for them, it's all about expendable products that are used to generate these sequences, and they would prefer that you throw the data away that, that generated it. In our case, we can allow our, our customers to retain everything so that they can reevaluate the data from its core and come up with new insights as well. So it's a, a complete life cycle of how do you generate the data, where does it land, and how do you then move it into this common plane which is typically on S3 uh, around the world. So we, we see that kind of being the normalizing thing. Uh, but we also can do the same thing with our ONTAP uh, world with NFS and having the ability to really tier it automatically into that object store as well. So we have multiple pathways for our customers to um, really think about. Yeah, and I mean, I look at NFS and file-based access as more of a on-prem thing, right? Like being able to, to access things locally, or if you have a bunch of clients that are doing sequencing or a bunch of clients that are analyzing the data, you might already be using NFS and that's just fine. But like you mentioned, if you're going to the cloud, you now have a, an, a way to share all that data across clients agnostically. You don't have to worry about protocols in, in having a Linux client or setting up Windows NFS, right? You can now do this regardless of what the client OS is and access that data through standard HTTP calls. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And then a lot of times, so just to go back into what are people doing with these genomic profiles and sequences, if we think about it from um, just the plant species, we, we think about how we feed the world, you know, there's a lot of push against genomically modified foods. So they want foods that aren't, aren't really modified whatsoever. So that also then drives, well, where is this research going to go? And the research often is going towards, you know, what can we do from a fertilizer and pesticide perspective that will have zero impact on the actual food we eat and might not even be absorbed or, or pulled into it? And how can we target the, the things uh, to have higher yield and, and still retain that non-GMO um, flavor? But then, of course, there is the genetically modified component where, you know, they're saying, look, we're just making sure that this, you know, doesn't need to be sprayed with the pesticide and, and a bug would want to eat it. But then one would ask, well, why would a human? So they're looking more towards, you know, not just pest resistance, but maybe more towards drought resistant and, and other components there um, in the food. And the only way you can do that is really you have to have a vast data set. You have to be able to look, you know, through large genomic profiles, not just of the actual plant biome, then also of the insect biome. So if you want to do a targeted pesticide that might be eradicating a certain kind of, of uh, insect, then you need to understand the genetic profile of that insect and how can you target it. So these, there, there's an entire industry really around these kind of things that go beyond just normal 
uh, health and welfare kind of components um, when we think about genetics and bioinformatics in this entire space. Yeah, I think I think it's important. I think the other thing on the human species side to echo is we know a lot and we're finding discoveries through this genetic analysis every day, uh, and, and that's really fortunate. But as somewhat referenced here, it is still a massive undertaking to understand um, the biology itself within the human person or individual such that we might know that he or she is predispositioned uh, for breast cancer, brain cancer, what have you, but we don't fully understand the molecular uh, processes like we want to, right? We can understand a few things, but there's so much more to understand that still hasn't been discovered. So I want to make sure we emphasize that on the NetApp technology side, we, we recognize this ongoing need for a repetitive analysis because sometimes they might take information they've gone over the data set once or twice or many times, and they still don't quite discover what they're after. And then literally a year or more might go by and they revisit that data set. So when we're talking about helping our customers, our researchers uh, develop these discoveries, we have to keep in mind that they may go back to the well. They may have to repeat some of their research or their algorithms many times over before they find that one uh, information, they, they get a better understanding of that one biological process that just wasn't understood before. And then even on the drug development side, we hear this all the time, they, they come across these new uh, mutations that they're targeting and, and saving literally millions of dollars in drug development time and resource, but then it doesn't quite work out or maybe the clinical trials don't quite work out as expected. So they have to go back or they have to put it on the shelf again. But I think it's important to note that the data still has value, that they may go back within a year or so and find out another use for that same compound. So, so again, there's a lot more than just meets the eye here, and, and we want to emphasize that, and that's why we're happy to be supporting this type of environment. And I think we've, we've come full circle. What it means is that the data retains value. Uh, unlike traditional big data applications where uh, I often say the data is like strawberries. It has intrinsic value when it first lands, but then it becomes less and less value as it ages. In this particular case, it's the opposite. But when we start talking about bioinformatics and genomic data, this is the kind of data that when it lands, it has value and it only increases in value over time as you accumulate more and more. So it's, it's, it's kind of standing the big data analytic world on its head where, you know, the new fresh data has you know, the most value in, in the traditional big data analytic world, in this particular case, it's not just the new fresh data that has value, but it's that intrinsic data lake that has really truly all of the value. So the data in this particular use has enormous value. Unlike, you know, financial information, which is very transient and very much real-time data and provides some historical context, but the actionable nature of that data has to happen within milliseconds, let's say. Whereas in this particular case, the actionable, actionable component of the data could happen five years out or 10 years out as your science catches up with the actual data that you've retained. So it's really it's a completely opposite approach to a lot of the things we're used to seeing out in this big data and analytic world. And when we start applying machine learning algorithms to it and the, the kind of tools that one can develop using you know artificial intelligence to spot things that that we aren't inherently good at spotting, it really is opening up an entire, you know, Pandora's box of opportunity here. So you mentioned how, 
you know, data can age out or data can go onto a shelf. Um, and that got me thinking about some of the solutions we have. We'll talk ONTAP here for a second since we talked about Storage Grid. So, you know, if you're using ONTAP and all flash fast, that's going to give you that performance. And then you have your large data lake uh, that might fit onto a flex group volume. And then when you start to age out data, you might not want to keep that on that flash. So it, it can go into the fabric pool tiering where it can tier off to storage grid or cloud. So we've got a lot of different technologies already in place that can help genomics workflows as they stand. Tell me a little bit more about how we're using things for like ONTAP for data protection. What are, what are customers using ONTAP for to help protect that data? So I, I would say as, as with anything that has really intrinsic value like this, the key component is you have to be able to retain it forever. So the data protection that one gets with Waffle is inherent in our architecture. It protects it forever. Um, even when we move it as a fabric pool into storage grid, we're able to do that data protection through, you know, basically how we distribute the data and erasure code it. So we provide that longevity and data protection. The other thing is encrypting the data because as with everything with value, uh, we need to make sure that the data can be encrypted so that bad actors don't have access to this as well. Because as much as we can say that this is a fantastic tool for people who are trying to help humanity, it's a double-edged sword, too, because when you have enough data like this, you can also find weaknesses that you could exploit as well. So it's really important to make sure that, you know, you encrypt the data, you protect it as the asset it is, and especially given the fact that this is one of those unique situations where the data's intrinsic value is just having it, and it doesn't decline with time. So having the data and retaining it is where the value is. So you have to treat it like anything else of value. So by encrypting it and making it easy. Yeah, I would add to that. We need need to keep in mind that the data itself, as we said early part of this conversation, has to eventually get into the hands of, say, a point-of-care clinician. So so why I'm bringing that up now with the protection of security aspect is we know very well, having worked with the healthcare environment, um, that there's a lot of protection there, right? And we provide that protection. So as noted, all the things that Gus gave on encryption. And we also know that the electronic health records that have been digitized over the past number of years all have a greater uh, responsibility for privacy and protection. Now think about genomic research. Historically, genomic research has taken the approach of stripping out the patient's identifier information or de-identifying those patients. And it's still very common today that, that we do that. But more and more, there's this effort to converge, right? We need to get the discoveries, the biomarkers, the mutations, and especially if we're doing uh, genomic testing for a patient, we need to bring that data together. So whereas today and or in the past, we might say, well, you know, it's de-identified, it's okay. The reality is we need to find mechanisms and tools like we're describing that help it on its journey to ultimately be in the hands of a doctor or another clinician and or to the patient themselves when they look at their electronic health record. Because I'll be honest, right now, most electronic health records do not have sufficient information on a patient's genetic profile. And that's actually slowing down some of the uh, point of care uh, value of having that genetic data. So again, we're always seeing things in flux and in motion. And I just want to echo that when we talk data protection, that we need to keep in mind, not just the research side, which is very important and needs to be protected, but also ultimately the protections for the patient and the clinician when it gets to electronic health record itself. And I just add one other thing, like things like SnapLock for our ability to recover data back to its last known state. So you can protect yourself from malware, you can protect yourself from ransomware. These things are really only amplified in these kind of data sets. 
And then things like our, our ability to do flex cloning, the ability to do instantaneous clones of data so that other scientists can have access to the same data pool and can be, you know, reading and modifying it, but without affecting each other. Again, the fact that you can collaborate and not have to worry about, you know, contaminating the, the original data set is, uh, it pays dividends down the road as well. I'm just going to jump in and give one more quick example because it was just in the news, so it's public domain. Um, we just saw an announcement of one of our customers in Iceland uh, who's doing a lot of phenomenal work in the genomic research world um, sign a, an agreement with a large hospital system in Utah. I want to echo that or bring that out because it's showing the trends. It's showing where we're seeing uh, a convergence or co collaboration, at least, between major research institutions and more and more major uh, patient care clinical cancer research institutions. So when we talk about this, I know sometimes folks listen to these podcasts and they say, well, that's great that you're describing your tools, but the reality is it's happening in the real world and we're supporting that aspect as well. I've been to Iceland for unknown reasons. Great place to do it. It is. Yeah, I enjoy it. It's, it's not does, just yeah. sheep. It's also genomics. A lot of genomics there. Exactly. Excellent. So, yeah, I was going to mention yeah. SnapLock as, as one of the solutions and, you know, to expand upon that you know you can set a snap lock retention period of however long you want and no one can touch it and then you mentioned the flex clone aspect which is great because we don't affect that original source data like you mentioned we we are able to use it and create new spin-offs of that data if we want to and if we want to save those spin-offs we can do that by splitting the clones precisely no that, that and that's the case and therein lies the power of some of the tools and features and functionality that we bring uniquely to the space so Excellent. All right. So uh, any final thoughts about genomics and NetApp? Uh, David? Yeah, I want to leave one final thought. I think we all get this, but it's always worth reemphasizing. And when we present, we always leave with this and try to close with this too. At the end of the day, all these great things we're doing, all these great tools, the data management tools have to be impactful. They have to improve or save lives, right? That's the focus, whether you're a lab researcher or whether you're a bioinformatician trying to calculate or analyze algorithms. At the end of the day, we always want to keep in mind that we are doing a great thing. We are impacting lives. And just to echo that further, our CEO, Durst Curring, gets a shout out because about a year or so ago, he was on stage with one of our big genomic partners out of Iceland. And I think any organization that has their CEO recognizing the importance of this type of work and, and has it on stage to the large audience projecting that, hey, we're not just saying we're going to do this. We're actually doing it in a big way. And it's you know, from the top leadership point of view, an important thing to do. So we're happy and proud to be supporting both the researchers, the clinicians, and all those that are involved with genomics today. And Gus. Yeah, and I just want to say this is one of those unique attributes where the actual data as it ages doesn't decline in value. It only increases in value. So the ability to search these vast data sets in, in, and, and look at all of it as it grows bigger and bigger becomes more and more important. So it's one of those unique times where the data doesn't diminish in value as you acquire more of it. Um, and really helping our customers to democratize the data, to monetize it so that they can run a business model that allows them to do the research they need to help humanity is as important as anything. So I think, um, it's a brave new world out there for sure, and uh, we're uniquely positioned to help our customers to not just capitalize on it, but to do good things with it. So that's how I would think about this. All right, excellent. So, David, Gus, thanks so much for joining us today. Again, uh, if we wanted to get more information about NetApp Genomics, how do we do that, David? 
Well, we make it really easy. You can uh, come to our website, uh, cisconetapp.com slash US slash genomics. Or if you're really quick on the draw and want to do a Google search, just do a quick search that has three words. And the three words are NetApp Accelerates Genomics, and you'll find us there as well. All right. Excellent. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Justin. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at netup. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank David LeBrosse and Gus Horn for joining us today. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.